Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Acts. Now we're up to chapter 4. We're averaging, as you see, about a chapter a week. I don't know how long we're going to be able to continue that. Acts chapter 4. We'll begin by just reading the first four verses. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. In uh, late summer of 1862, second year of the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee led the Army of Northern Virginia for the first time up into Northern Territory. He was going to take the the war to Northern soil in the hopes that uh, having some battles up there would discourage the North from fighting and and bring a quick uh, peace. The uh, General of the North who was to stop him was at the time a man named General George McClellan. And uh, Lincoln was concerned that uh, McClellan not venture out too far too fast because Lee would come in and uh, take Washington, D.C., at that, our, our capital. So McClellan slowly and cautiously ventured kind of northwest in the direction he suspected Lee might be. And uh, one afternoon, as they came near the Monocacy River, which is north of Washington, D.C., would later become famous uh, because of uh, uh, a stalling maneuver by a man named Lou Wallace, who you probably know as the author of Ben-Hur. Um, a soldier happened to notice a package on the ground. It had been left by the Confederate Army after it had passed through the area. And um, inside were a couple of cigars, but what was more important, it was wrapped with a piece of paper. The, p- the piece of paper was a complete description of all of Lee's plans, where all of his troops were, what they were going to do, where they were going to go, when, and how many. Yeah, I I heard the groan. Can you imagine? I mean, you've got in your hands now all the plans of your opponent. Well, as you know, for some reason, the war went on for another three years. So obviously, McClellan didn't do much with it, and that was pretty typical. He sat on it. And uh, it led, unfortunately, to the bloodiest day of the war, which is the Battle of Antietam, a few days later. Uh, and it really didn't do anything. But, but the point of that illustration is, um, God has given us the plans and the tactics and the goals of our adversary right here. Think about that. It says in Second Corinthians that we are not ignorant of his devices, speaking of the devil. So no cigars, but there's some paper here. And it's great, isn't it? To not have to be, you know, fighting in the dark. We know what the devil is up to. We know what his goals are. And we even know how he tries to achieve them. And so God gives us those things in his word so that we can find out what they are and act accordingly. And we don't want to do like McClellan and sit on it. So as I said before, as we go through the book of Acts, remember, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden where God first created man and, and the devil at first isn't quite sure how to, what to do here, but he, he wants to thwart God, anything God does. And so he ended up uh, tempting first Eve and, and then Adam ate and then sin came and so on. Well, now it's a whole new ball game. 
the Son of God has come, and the devil, in trying to oppose that and, and uh, have the Lord Jesus crucified, actually played into God's hands. And the Lord Jesus died for our sins and now opened heaven for us. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, God uses, you know, uh, the most unusual things to accomplish his purposes. Well, Satan's not going to let that happen again now. He's, he's kind of like watching and seeing, what's the next move here? What's God going to do? Well, uh, he's going to give this message of what his son has done to ordinary folks like you and me and uh, fill them with the Holy Spirit, first indwell by the Holy Spirit, baptized, we saw that, and then as they yield, fill, that is control, and they will then take this message throughout the world, and that's where the battle will rage because it's going to be a fight between the devil and his adversaries or, or his helpers trying to stop the believers from getting this message out. And so we're going to see the first move in opposition today. Up until now, in the book of Acts, has been all peace and prosperity, hasn't it? You know, sun is out shining. Peter preaches, 3,000 people say, praise the Lord. Well, finally, uh, the devil is, is working out his strategy. And as we, as we go through the book of Acts, and even later in the other epistles, and through Revelation, the devil has two kind of areas of, of uh, strategy, if you will. One is to work from outside the church. We're going to see that in this passage today. A direct attack. Tries to intimidate the believers. Fear. Uses fear. You know, oh no. They're going to say bad things about me if I talk about Jesus. You know. And so we cooperate and remain silent. You know. I don't want anybody to be rude to me. You know. That hurts. And of course in the book of Acts it's, it begins with threats and even ends with death uh stoning it, it gets physical but that's his first obvious tactic that that would be the one i think anybody would think of first of all just try to scare the guys it turns out that throughout the book of acts and generally the history of the church as i said before that's probably been the the least effective uh tactic of the devil because it strengthens the church number one it causes the believers to cast themselves on the lord and trust him and cry out to him and number two it weeds out the false professors nobody wants to pretend to be a christian in that kind of an atmosphere so really it keeps the health the, the church healthy <coughs> uh of course later the other uh effort from without is the world and we're still fighting that today aren't we the enticements of the world instead of a frontal assault it's you know come here i have something for you you know distracting us from the gospel the other way is he, he attacks from within we'll see this next week he tries to get inside the church and he'll do all kind of things we've seen it uh, in our history he'll try to divide the church pit christians against each other he'll destroy a church that way grievances and offenses terrible things um he'll drop in counterfeit believers it's like dropping a a, a piece of ice in a cup of hot tea you know you have somebody that says they're a Christian, but they're just, they're cold for Christ. They're not even saved. And it brings down the spiritual temperature of the church. He's a pretty smart guy. And of course, um, the other way of, of coming from within and, and, and uh, thwarting the church's mission is to raise up false teachers. It's interesting that Peter, who we saw preached last week, and we're going to see him again today, addressed two of those tactics of the devil in both of his letters is that interesting he experienced them personally and so he wrote about them to help the believers then and to help us now the first one 
uh, persecution, the direct attack is first Peter. That's really the subject of that letter. The second one is what? You know what the theme of it is? False teachers. Isn't that interesting? He saw them both in his lifetime. He saw the devil use these tactics. And in both of them, he encourages the believers and tells them how to respond. Okay, well, uh, we saw here, remember, uh, Peter uh, told the, the lame man for 40, the guy's been lame for 40 years since birth. And they laid him uh, in front of the temple gate to beg day after day, year after year. People knew this guy. And Peter comes by and says, I don't have any gold and silver, but what I have, I, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And he didn't just stand up and walk. Remember, he was jumping around. And it was a great miracle. Gathered a big crowd. Peter preached the gospel. And uh, the number, it says, came to 5,000. So probably another couple of thousand were saved. Wow, huh? Um, well, like I said, the devil's ready to respond. And here's the first uh, counterattack, if you will. And look at the crowd or the, or the group, the impressive group that came to confront them. You've got the priests. Remember, that's the tribe of Levi. And they do the daily uh, chores around the temple. Uh, cleaning the, the um, spoons and the shovels and the bowls and the cups bringing in new bread, uh, putting in new incense on the altar, offering up the sacrifices. They do the day-to-day -day work. <clears throat> and they're upset that there's these outsiders over here and this guy's preaching in our temple about this Jesus. They don't like that. The captain of the temple, he'd be like the head honcho at, at the temple. He's, he's kind of over everybody. Now, he's not the highest official. The highest would be Annas the high priest or Caiaphas. Because they're the, they're the spiritual leaders. And uh, <clears throat> finally, the Sadducees. It's, it's important to understand why they came and not the Pharisees. But notice it doesn't say the Pharisees. The reason the Sadducees came is because they're upset about what it says here in verse uh, 2. They don't believe in the resurrection. And here's Peter several times. If you look at his message, he talked about God raising Jesus from the dead. Oh, no. That's heresy, according to them. Resurrection. And so they want to come over here and shut these guys up. The Sadducees, uh, you'll know them from elsewhere. You remember, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I think. They were the ones that came to Jesus with that crazy story of the lady that was married to the seven brothers. Remember? You know, one died, then the next. And so she ended up being married, all seven of them in her lifetime. And they were used, it was, obviously didn't really happen. But they were using it to show the silliness of the resurrection. Because now, who's she going to be married to in heaven? You know, because all, all eight of them are going to be there. And of course, Jesus rebuked them strongly. He said, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. In heaven, they neither marry or are given in marriage. You don't need to get married. We're married to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom. And later, Paul is going to use uh, this faction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't. And if you remember... Later in the book of Acts, they arrest him. <clears throat> he kind of gets the attention off of himself by telling the council, uh, the reason I'm here is because I'm trying to preach the resurrection. And immediately, you know, the Sadducees, ah, that's wrong. And the Pharisees, no, he's right. And uh, they, they uh, started uh, fighting each other instead of Paul. <clears throat> so here they are. Uh, intimidation. I like uh, verse 3. Maybe some of the policemen in our midst can relate to this. But it's late in the day. Remember, it was 3 o'clock when they went to the temple to pray. 
probably about four, five, six uh, is when these guys come around. It's too late to do anything. So they just, they put them in the pokey. They lock them up. Let them think about it a little bit. Huh? Right, right, Tom? Yeah, you think about it. This is Peter. Last time he was in the, uh, with this crowd, he denied knowing Jesus three times. Remember that? And now he's stewing on it. He's sitting locked up in this prison cell, ready to face trial tomorrow, and it's going to be exactly the same guys that condemned Jesus. You don't think he didn't think about that? They knew that. And uh, it's, real, it's kind of like a, the old cereals they used to have, you know? Uh, maybe some of you older saints like me can remember. They used to have uh, episodes of, of uh, you know, Buck Rogers and all these guys where they'd have an, an adventure and they'd always leave them hanging on a cliff or in some really tense situation. Tune in next week, you know? That's where they'd end. Well, it's like that. I mean, here it is. Night is falling. Peter's locked up in prison. He's going to be facing Annas and Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin and the whole bit, just like Jesus tomorrow. What will Peter do? Tune in next week. Before we get to uh, what Peter does, I love uh, verse 4. The first word there is a big word. However, in other words, in spite of all of this opposition, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The, the gospel doesn't have chains on it. You know, you can't control the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? God chose an instrument uh, in his in his uh, great plan of salvation that is very hard to fight it's a message it's the message of jesus isn't that great how do you fight that you can't okay well uh here's the uh, next day verse five and it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, look at this, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed, done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead by him this man stands here before you whole this is the stone which was rejected by the builders pardon me by you builders which has become the chief cornerstone nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved Woo! i'd like to talk like that wouldn't you man that's great it's good stuff so here's the whole batch they got the whole family out of the high priest (laughs) this is intimidation city and there's a key phrase here it's a little phrase but it's used throughout the bible this is another way to study the bible think about occurrences of just small phrases the phrase i'm thinking of here is set them in the midst now think about what that's saying here you've got the council all seated here the sanhedrin all all the mucky mucks of israel the guys who have the power of life and death and and they bring peter and john and they set them right in the middle so every eye is on them how do you think they feel 
another intimidation factor okay you know these guys are the recognized leaders of israel here they are a couple of fishermen and they're being called to task with the possibility of death they did it to jesus for no reason no basis at all so they don't they don't need uh, uh, a basis for doing it set them in the midst make them the focus of attention is to bring fear and as i and as i thought about that i remembered they did this earlier it's in john 8 the poor woman taken in adultery and it says and they brought her and set her in the midst and just imagine that poor trembling woman in the middle of these haughty arrogant leaders probably with stones in their hand ready to finish her off but uh, the reason I'm making such a big deal about that phrase is because it also talks about, it's used by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was trying to explain um, how we need to be to, to come to him, it says, he took a child and set him in the midst. But it wasn't for intimidation because then he took him up in his arms and he said, you need to come just like one of these if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't, what a difference, huh? You know, the child is the focus, but as an example, that's Jesus. What a difference. And the other one I thought of is uh, the, the poor woman. We don't know her name. She just called a sinner at uh, the house of uh, Simon, the Pharisee. Remember the one that was uh, weeping on Jesus' feet and, and, and wetting his feet with her tears and, and wiping his feet with her hair? And Simon's up there, you know, if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch, touch him. And, and Jesus points her out i love it there must have been a pause he said simon do you see this woman and at that moment every eye in that room had to have turned and looked at this woman and he proceeds as you know to have a wonderful description of all the services that she had performed of worship to him while simon had basically ignored him in the midst <clears throat> well here they are in the midst and uh, we're going to see the answer. We don't have to wait till next week to see episode six, by the way. It's here right now. We've got a different Peter on our hands, folks. Uh, not only has he seen and been taught by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, but he's now filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, it doesn't mean you know, filled. It means controlled. He is under the control of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> So his sermon, really it's a sermonette, it's only four verses, uh, is going to be quite different. So let's look at it verse by verse here. <clears throat> First of all, verse 8, this is interesting. He says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. What's interesting about that? Well, normally he would just answer his accuser. There's a man there, a single man that asked him a question. But he, he's not going to just talk to the, He's not going to have just a dialogue with this one guy. He's going to talk to the whole group. And what he's saying is, okay, everybody here, I want you guys to listen up. This is important for all of you. Isn't that good? <laughs> talk about boldness. Listen to how he chooses his words here. If, this, uh, if we this day are judged for a good deed, how, why do you try people for good deeds? What have they done? They healed a guy. Done to a helpless man that's got to remind uh the sadducees and the others present 
that they knew this because they saw this guy every day when they came to the temple and they could do nothing about it they were just as helpless as he by what means he has been made well reminding them that uh, as in, indeed there was a miracle <clears throat> he, he, he gives his introduction and now he preaches christ i love this let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel it's like he's shouting you know not not uh volume wise but he's he wants to, he wants to tell everybody in the whole nation about jesus that's what he's saying here <clears throat> And uh, he doesn't always say Jesus Christ of Nazareth when he talks about the Lord, but he does here. It's a reminder that in their eyes, he's a nobody. Nazareth, Galilee was a despised area of the uh, Judeans. Whom you crucified, and here's the conviction of sin. We talked about that from previous messages. Listen to this. Put yourself in the Jews' shoes, as he says, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Whoa. We have a little uh, counter purpose there. You, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. So who are these guys against? <clears throat> Bottom line. Yeah. Woo. <clears throat> and then finally, he plainly says, by him, that is Jesus, this man stands here before you whole. <clears throat> Verse 11, uh, I said it's good to use the scripture. Even in this little short passage, he quotes the Bible. Psalm 2. It's a wonderful psalm. He changes a word. He misquotes it. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You know what word he changed? Yeah. In the Psalms, it says, this is the chief cornerstone which the builders rejected. Peter turns around and says, which you builders (laughs) rejected. That's called application of scripture. Man, I, I don't know. I think I'd be a little uncomfortable right now out in that audience, you know? And uh, if you're not familiar with Psalm 2, it, what a great... Uh, uh, pardon me, it's not Psalm 2. Psalm 2 comes later. This is a different one. But uh, he couldn't have picked a better verse, I don't think. Jesus used this verse, as you remember, when uh, they kept coming to him uh, with all those crazy questions. And so he told the parable of the landowner and the sons and how he sent his sons to to get the crop, remember? Or pardon me, his servants. And then he sent his son and he said, the guys that were working the vineyard said, okay, here comes the son. Let's kill him and get the inheritance. And uh, he asked the Jews, now what will the the landowner do to those guys? And uh, basically they answered and said, he's going to get rid of them and he's going to give that land to somebody else. And in their own lips, they condemn themselves. Because that's exactly what the Lord did. He took the, the uh, promise, or not the promise, but he took the blessing, the, the standing of, of uh, blessing away from the nation, and he gave it to the church. Now, he's going to give it back in a later day to Israel. And this is the verse that Jesus quoted to them right here. I have no doubt Peter would remember that and also probably remembers it from the 40 days where the Lord taught him. Anyway, he caps off his sermon with this wonderful verse. I think probably most here have memorized it. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Man, isn't that good? 
There's a sermon right there. And he's preaching the gospel. He said, whereby we must be saved. He's including everybody in that room. He's really telling them, Jesus died for you too. Episode 7. <clears throat> what will the council do? <clears throat> Start in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no one to no man in this name so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of jesus but peter and john answered and said to them whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you more than to god you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard so when they had further threatened them they let them go finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This is great. Here we have a couple of fishermen taking on uh, the whole echelon of uh, higher authority in the nation of Israel. And they look at these guys and they're amazed. You know, these guys are fishermen. Listen to how this guy just spoke. They're impressed. <laughs> and I love this, this last phrase. I hope you caught it. As they're thinking about where did these guys get this stuff from, it says, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that good? That, that explains it, you see. Because they knew the Lord Jesus. They knew that he had spoken with authority. And that's the way it should be with us, isn't it? Peter was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. We have policemen here, window installers, I don't know what else, Safeway workers, you know. I'm a computer programmer, music majors. We're, we're nobodies. But the world should be able to tell that we have been with Jesus. It should show. If you've been with Jesus, it can't but help be apparent. Amen? And it certainly was here. I, I love that. What a tribute to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Well, uh, this is one of those trials where it's not open to the media. They, uh, they sent them out of the room. Why did they do that? Because they didn't want them to hear what they were about to say. Because what they're about to say is kind of embarrassing if you're on the council. Listen to what they say. First of all, uh, verse 16, what should we do to these men? Why should you do anything? What have they done that's wrong? Uh, they, in other words, we're all agreed we've got to do something to these guys. But here's the killer. For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. Why would you want to deny it? Why would you want to deny that a miracle has been done? A man who's lived for 40 years as a paralytic is suddenly jumping around in the temple and praising God. Is that bad? 
Not to mention the fact, look, this is a miracle, folks. God did this. I think I'd want to be a little careful, you know, how I tried to manage this situation. This is embarrassing. So they want to deny it, but they can't. So they come to the conclusion so that it spreads no further. Wouldn't that be terrible? You know, let's tell these guys uh, from now on that they speak to no man and they don't even use Jesus and they say in this name. Notice that they didn't even say in the name of Jesus. It's like they choke, you know, <laughs> you know, this name. I can't say it. Jesus. <clears throat> now, a careful Bible student always notices when God repeats himself. When God says something twice, it means it's important. Everything he says is important. But when he says it twice, it's really important. They just got through saying here in verse 17. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. You should say something like, so they did it. What does it say? So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Well, we already knew that. Why did God say it again? Let these words be impressed on your forehead. Remember I told you about the plans of Robert E. Lee that McClellan found. <clears throat> What we have right here in a nutshell is the chief objective of the devil. It's like we found those cigars and unwrapped the paper and there it is. That is his chief objective. To get Christians to stop talking about Jesus. Okay? We can use that. In other words, let's talk about Jesus. <clears throat> because that's the devil's main objective. Can you imagine these guys are co-laboring with the devil? That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians, it said, we are co-laborers with God. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a co-laborer with God than a co-laborer with the devil. So when I remain silent about Jesus, I'm cooperating. What is it? I'm aiding and abetting the enemy. But when I speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm a co-laborer with God. And not only that, he's a co-laborer with me. He's at work, you see. That's where you want to be. <clears throat> Important uh, verse there. Well, uh, the best response <clears throat> is what Peter says. It really should have been sobering to these guys. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Uh, let me think about that. You know, I think uh, it's better to obey God. <clears throat> and then verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I love that. What he's saying is, we saw this. I saw the risen Christ. I spent 40 days with him. How can I remain silent about that? He was dead. Now he's alive. Yeah. I should go home and pretend it didn't happen. Hello, you know. So the lines are drawn now between the devil and the church, and it's going to be contention now until this very day of the devil trying to get Christians to not talk or, or speak or preach in the, his name and for the Christians to.
to co-labor with God and defy the devil and talk about Jesus. It starts right here. <clears throat> well, uh, there is uh, fruit, as we saw. Uh, there was 5,000 saved. And um, it's interesting. Think about the council for a moment. In, in 21, in spite of all these great answers and uh, challenges that Peter throws their way, it doesn't say that any of them believed. That's incredible. I mean, think of the miracle that these guys have just seen. Here, here's this 40-year-old guy standing right there, you know, that they'd seen laying out there begging day after day after day. And Peter's telling them, it's Jesus. And there's no other name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. What that says is, miracles don't save. We said that before. As much as we love miracles, they're, they're, I'd love to see one, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be great? And by the way, God still performs miracles, don't get me wrong. But as far as somebody like Peter just going around as he's going to do later, and every person he comes to, they're healed. That, that went out as soon as the, the New Testament was finished. Certainly God still answers prayer and performs miracles, but his preferred way now to salvation is not pyrotechnic, but it's believing him at his word. And here's a, here's a good example. The word didn't phase him, and the miracle didn't help at all. Okay, let's see. Now we're going to change scenes here. This is episode, what, eight? Now we're going to look at the disciples and see what they do. <clears throat> Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own, and I'm going to leave out the word companions, or whatever you have, it's italicized. They went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness now i love that phrase at the beginning of verse 23 that's why you know when you have a word in, in italics in your bible it means it's not in the original language you know that right and this is a wonderful uh, verse in verse 23 and being let go literally says they went to their own they went to the other believers isn't that great it's a much stronger if you say companions that's nice but it it's much stronger than it to their own uh not just their own people, their own place. You know, the place where they felt they belonged. The ones that would encourage them. That would pray with them. The ones that loved them. It's, it's a very strong statement. Being let go. They went to their own. I call it the Christian homing instinct. It's wonderful. Just like God created animals with a homing instinct inside them that he gave them. He does that to believers. Did you know that? Believers 
when you really are saved, you just want to be with other believers. Isn't that right? Where'd that come from? <laughs> it's from God. I could not stand Christians before I got saved. You know, I'd go the other way. And I remember we got saved, and, and uh, my wife and I got saved really through a church way over in Concord. And uh, it was just too far to drive. We didn't have any follow-up at all. But there was just something in us that made us want to be with, there must be people out there like us, you know. That was the way we felt. We started going through the yellow pages. <laughs> Ended up in a Quaker church up in Berkeley. But there's this, this homing instinct that's wonderful. Uh, we're familiar with it in, in creation. Probably the best example is homing pigeons. You've heard of them, right? But, you know, they'll take these pigeons and drive them hundreds of miles like in a car or something, and they'll let them go. And without a road map, without Google Earth, or a GPS locator, they still, by the way, to this very day, they don't know how they do it. They used to think it was the Earth's magnetic field. You probably heard that. They're, they're shooting that one down. Now they think it's a sense of smell. <laughs> they don't know. But these pigeons will go back not only to the neighborhood, they will go right to the nest. Well, they, isn't that wonderful? Right where they started from. And I, that's, that's what I think when I hear this. And being let go, you can just see the pigeon flying out, they return to their own. That's, like, that's the way a healthy Christian is. And being let go, you know? Don't you feel like that? Particularly uh, you, if you work out of the house. Man, I'm like that. It's been a long day at work, you know, or a long week at work. Isn't it great to come together like this with the brothers and sisters? Huh? And talk about Jesus and worship him and hear the word? Are you like that? Why do, you, why do you go to church? Is it because, you know, well, I have to go to church, you know? Or do you have that homing instinct? I love it. Okay, being let to go, they went to their own. What was their response? What did they do when they went to their own? Well, uh, Peter and John told them everything that happened. Can you imagine? I mean, just every... Uh, uh, I must have been fixed on them and every mouth dropped as they heard what happened and so they pray that's that's neat you know just they just prayed what's what should we do right now nobody just said it they just did it they just cried out to God and mostly praise and worship for the great thing that God had done and then there's a petition at the end note by the way again here in a verse 24 that phrase we've been talking about since the beginning of the book they raised their voice to God with what? One accord. That's the fourth time God has used that phrase to describe the believers. Something tells me it must be important. Huh? And whenever you see it, you see the blessing of God. When the believers are united together with one accord. Now, you may think they're stating the obvious here when they start off. They say, Lord, you are God. And you, and you say, well, yeah. Now, what they're saying there, they're not, just, they're not just stating the obvious. They're talking about the sovereignty of God. Lord, you are God. You're overall. You're the great one. And your poor purposes can't be thwarted. That's what they're saying by that. Lord, you are God. And that's why, by the way, they, they turn to Psalm 2. It's a great psalm to describe the sovereignty of God. And... I don't think they could have thought of a better passage to describe what had just taken place in that council. 
Listen to Psalm 2. This is the way Psalm 2 says this right here in your Bible. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Wasn't that the situation they just been through? They're living prophecy here. Now, you know how that uh, psalm goes on? Listen to how it continues. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And listen to this. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Past tense. Isn't that good? <laughs> Woo! It, that's where it goes on to say, by the way, kiss the son lest he be angry. So they're excited. I would be too. First this miracle and now they're living scripture right here in their very lives isn't that great man what a time to worship god and uh, in their prayer they uh, i love this they, they really throw you a curve because in 27 they talk about all of these guys gathered together just like in the psalm to oppose god but then they say they're gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done isn't that good and that's the way God is. The, the opponents of God can have their plans and their objectives, but God is going to achieve his purpose. And often he'll use their worst to do it. And so they're praising God for that. Now, we get to the, uh, the petition part of the prayer. And this is very important. Pay attention to what they asked for. Put yourself in their shoes. They've been threatened physically. Uh, God has intervened for the moment. So they're contemplating going back out now and talking about Jesus again. So how would you pray? Well, this is how they prayed. First of all, they said, now, Lord, look on their threats. That's the first part. So in regard to the guy, the bad guys, okay, they didn't say, now, Lord, bring down fire and brimstone on those guys and wipe them out. Isn't that interesting? No vengeance. No retaliation. In fact, I love the way they said it. They just say, look on their threats. In other words, <clears throat> Lord, please notice you know, what they're doing. But you, we'll leave that in your hands. That's what they're saying. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebuilt uh, Jerusalem and uh, several times in the book it's a very unusual book as he's writing the word of God he'll interject a little prayer that he makes it's just a little one sentence prayer and when they're trying to get him to come down from the walls and stop his work he shoots up a little arrow prayer in one verse in Nehemiah and he says now Lord take note of them <laughs> I love that he doesn't he's not going to stop the work and he's not even going to call down fire and brimstone. He's not going to worry about that. He's just going to put them in God's hands. Basically, what he's saying is, Lord, you have something for me to do. I'm going to continue doing it because I know that's what you want me to do. You certainly don't want me to come down and try to deal with these guys because that's what they want me to do. I'm going to stay here and work. You take note of them and do whatever you need to do. Isn't that good? Very simple. Lord, take note of them. And that's what they're saying here. Don't focus on the opposition. Leave that in God's hands. It says it about the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. 
You understand? He didn't retaliate, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. You see the parallel? He says, Lord, these guys are, they're mocking me. They're scoffing. They're, they're calling me names. They're calling your relationship with me into question. I just commit myself to you and let you judge the situation. That's great. And that's what they're doing here. Second uh, request, grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word. That's great. So what they're saying is we're going to go out again. Okay, we're we're not uh, cowed. We're not going to give up. All we ask, Lord, is that when we go out again, give us boldness. Isn't that great? And then in verse 30, of course, uh, they ask for miracles, signs and wonders. And I'm not going to get into it. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But I'll, I'll say it. I would love to have miracles accompanying me whenever I went out to share the gospel. Wouldn't you? Man, it'd be great. People being healed and uh, the dead raised and that sort of thing. And God accommodated them. Early in the church, he made it clear who they were. And as, as well, it was a sign of judgment to the nation of Israel. But that, how encouraging would that be? I wonder if maybe this 40-year-old guy, you know, I bet he's tagging along now. Every time you look at him, look, that's what God is doing. He's on our side, you know. So three things. Take note of our opposition. Give us boldness and accompany our work with signs and wonders. What should be interesting, it, it, it hit me afresh, but uh, as they prayed to God in the area of evangelism, I think it differs from the way we often pray in evangelism. You know how? And I'm the first to, to admit this. I think too often we, we focus on asking God for fruit. We do. That's generally what we ask. Now, that's good. We should do that. Obviously, God wants that. But they, they don't ask for it here. Did you notice that? They didn't say, and Lord, give us 2,000 more. In fact, if you look at the prayers of Paul in the area of evangelism, the interesting thing is he prays exactly the same thing. In Ephesians, he tells them when they pray, and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel he didn't add and that many would be saved now there's nothing wrong with that but the interesting thing is you don't see it in the prayers it's like they know god wants to save souls i don't know about you but my area where i really need to ask help is my own fear can you relate to that that's me i need boldness and and the new testament believers sense that And whenever you see them praying about evangelism, that's what they're asking for. And the neat thing is, when they ask for that, because when you ask for that, you're committing yourself to opening your mouth if you ask for boldness, right? God honors it, and people get saved. (laughs) The fruit comes. Is that interesting? In Philippians, when he he, uh, wrote to the Philippian believers, ask them to pray. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness. There it is again. As always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he writes to the Colossians. Listen to what he says. 
Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also am in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. There it is again. Lord, help me speak. That's the prayer request over and over again of Paul because he knows that's where he needs the help. And I, like I said, I don't know about you. That's where I need help from God. I think we should take a cue from this, you know, maybe more often ask God for some boldness. And I'm saying that to me. Yes, ask for salvation of souls, ask for fruit. Yes, we should. But uh, let's not neglect a key area of need. And that's the need to speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important enough to talk about him, don't you? What did, what did uh, Peter say at the end of his sermon? For there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I think it's pretty important to talk about him then, if that's the case, huh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful example of Peter and John and the early believers and how really they had one burning desire and that was to make the Lord Jesus known to everyone around them. Lord, we, we want to pray that this morning and in particular, we want to pray along with them. Lord, grant your servants boldness that we may, we may be able to speak your word. Fill us with your spirit and give us openings, opportunities that we may be bold in these last days. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.